0: All right, so uh, we're covering our uh, list of values, uh, our, our church values, and um, last week we talked about knowing God, uh, and really all the values have to do with knowing God, they're the value, it's the value of all values, and um, I hope that we don't move on from these, you know, I hope that we, we kind of build layers into our understanding of where God has us, and I also believe that this is um, that we shouldn't move on from, I, 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 I sense that God is building deep foundations in our hearts and even calling some to, to know him in ways that we haven't known him before. Um, and I sense that as we are going through the lordship, discipleship, and church teachings, and this is why I came back to these, this list of values, um, to kind of hear these things for the first time or with, with fresh ears, with a fresh heart, and um, I really believe God's doing a deep work in our church uh, in terms of putting down a root system for us, uh, for, for the future growth that he wants to bring uh, into our lives. So these are just so important and so dear to, um, to us as a, as a church. So we talked about knowing God last week, and tonight we're going to talk about fatherhood. And like knowing God, you can read... All of Scripture through this lens and see it on every page. All right, um, and that's really what kind of every values, uh, every one of these values boils down to is yeah. This is these are primary ways that God that God operates. Um, but I want to read just uh, a few verses out of Hebrews chapter one to kind of set the tone, and then we'll pray, and then we'll walk through some. Some scripture having to do with the fatherhood of God. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would, um, that you would reveal your heart to us tonight, that you would reveal your purposes, Lord your eternal purposes to us. Father, I pray that you'd bring us in line with the reason that we exist, the reason that you formed us and brought us into this world. We thank you, Lord. Praise your holy name. In that name we pray, amen. All right, well, fatherhood is really all over scripture. And I want to go to Genesis 3 to to begin. And while you're going there, let me just say this. Everybody gets a different idea in their head when you say the word father. Or dad, depending on the stage of life that you're in. But when I say when I say father or dad to you 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 your experience I mean your experience immediately calculates what that means in your life Some of you get full of joy when I say think about your father father what does that mean to you Some of you there's some sadness behind that there's some hurt or some loss, right? Um, Some pain that that word brings into your mind. And everybody is different. Every single person here has a different pre-existing set of ideas about what a father is, okay? And that can make it very difficult to truly understand the fatherhood of God. And so what I hope happens tonight is that you really understand how fundamental fatherhood is to the whole purpose of God, God's existence, really his his whole care, his nature, all right, and his character. And the the deepest most foundational purposes behind our lives that he has for us. But I know that for for some of us it's going to be difficult to to get over what fatherhood means to us. All right, and push through and really see with with clarity and with truth the reality of God's fatherhood. And the reason I know this is difficult for it is it's difficult for all of us whatever our experience of dad is our whatever whatever our father means to us even if you had the perfect father the perfect father it would be difficult for you to understand the nature of God's fatherhood and i know this because there's a very crafty serpent who goes around and lies and has been from the beginning, as John says in his letter, "The devil has been sinning from the beginning. He lies. He's the father of lies. The devil has been lying about God's fatherhood from the beginning. In First Timothy chapter two, it says that Eve was deceived and so transgressed. Eve was deceived, and so she sinned because she was deceived about who God was. And we read about this deception in chapter 3 of Genesis. The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Some people point out that that wasn't quite accurate off the the bat. God didn't say anything about not touching it. But but the serpent said to the woman, And he just cranks the misunderstanding up a notch. You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Now. It's, it's a strange story because it seems so, it doesn't seem like that action brought sin and death into the world and changed human history. It doesn't seem like that would be the kind of thing <laughs> that would cause every problem and be, the, be the, the primary cause of all the evil that came into the world. because the serpent is crafty and subtle, okay? It's not until the second generation of sin that we see just what we would classify as you know, heinous sins, murdering your brother out of jealousy. That's why Cain murdered Abel. But that wasn't the first sin. That is a byproduct of this first sin. And this first sin happened as a result of a deception about who God is. And by extension, who we are in relation to him. Now, we know that before the foundation of the world, we know this because we have the luxury of having the New Testament, truth, the apostolic witness, and the words of Jesus that tell us what was going on before any of this happened. And what was going on before any of this happened was the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit shared perfect fellowship with one another. And it was so good that they said, let's make a being with which to share this goodness. Let's expand what we have. Let's, bring, let's make more beings in our image, that we can bring in to share in this life. This, by the way, is what we would be referring to last week as eternal life. And that's why God created man. And that's why God created the garden. And that's why God put a tree in the garden to tell the man, no. No. Don't eat that one. (laughs) From the beginning, God had a son in whom he was well-pleased. And because of that, God wanted more sons that he could share the goodness of that life and that love with. And so when you read... Genesis, through that lens, which is the lens that Jesus gives us to read it, right? He says, Father, glorify me with the glory that I shared with you before the foundation of the world. By the way, the Gospel of John, I, w- I would recommend reading it as a response to this teaching tonight. Get through the Gospel of John and just look at how Jesus, look at how Jesus just proves that that scripture in Hebrews that God in these last days once and for all has spoken to us or has revealed himself to us or has communicated who he is by his son. I'll remind you of last week's verse, John 17, 3. This is eternal life, that they know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Father and son. Eternal life is knowing the Father and the Son. And, not to, and, and knowing in the deep and intimate sense, meaning participation in the life of the Father and the Son. This is eternal life. This is why man was created in the image of God. No other creature could share this kind of life. And this was to be the reason behind God's creation of man. But Satan said, actually, God's command not to eat of the tree was was motivated by this. He doesn't want you, he doesn't want your eyes to be open, and he doesn't want you to become like him. He doesn't say that, but he says, oh, God made this prohibition because God knows what will happen if you actually go ahead and eat of that tree. Now, I don't think that Satan said anything false. Other than you will not surely die. I don't think he said anything false. I believe that God's intention was for man to learn in relationship with him the difference between good and evil. That eventually man's eyes were to be opened more and more as he walked with God in the cool of the day and as they shared life together. But first man had to learn to obey God. And so God put that tree there, we know, to teach man obedience. And Satan says... Kind of something that's, that rings a bit true. That's why he's the craftiest of all beasts. He says, you know, actually, God's withholding something from you, which was true, but wasn't to be eternally true. Does that make sense? This lesson now, this obedience lesson now, who knows what was, to, what was, what was on the other side of it once man was tested and proven true and right? learned obedience. We don't know. We don't know what would have happened if the fall never occurred. Well, we do know because we know how the story ends, right? But still, there's a sense of no eye has seen, no ear has heard, right? This, this level of glory that was to, was to come into the earth as man took dominion, as man cultivated the garden and kept it and worked it, and God was blessing them, and they're being fruitful and multiplying, right? Who knows what would have have happened? But what we do know, what what would have been happening is man and God would have been sharing in a father-son relationship in taking dominion over the earth. And Satan says, you have to circumvent. <laughs> circumvent the obedience lesson because look, look what's in it for you. The tree is good for food. It's a delight to the eyes and it's to des- be desired to make one wise. There's no sinful sounding reason behind uh, any of that. Oh, you're right. That's pretty good. I bet, I bet, I bet this is a pretty neat thing. I think, I'll, I think I'll do it. But God had said no. So Satan, the, the, the foundation of, of Satan's deception was to place doubt about God's motives or God's heart toward his sons and daughters, to place doubt about who God was in the mind of Eve. And she believed it. And she said, oh, okay. Well, I don't know why God wouldn't want me to do this, so I'm just going to do it. That is the foundation of the deception. That's the heart of every lie. And that's ultimately the cause of every sin. Now, the story goes on. And we know God brings a flood. Um, oh, it's, oh, we, can't, we can't stop at every, at every stop. But I want to go to, to Abraham and just look at how this, this theme gets picked back up. All right. So Adam and Eve have to leave the garden. Uh, human civilization deteriorates to the point of being just exceedingly corrupt. God has to bring a cleansing flood. Noah begins to repopulate the earth And those people get together and they say, basically, hey, look, we can be wise without God. We can make a name for ourselves. We can do all this. We are so smart with the intelligence that God placed within them because they were created in his image. (laughs) Look what we can do. God says, oh, wow, they realize the enormous potential that that I placed within them by design. They've realized it. And nobody wants to bring me into the process all right, we're going to have to go confuse their languages and scatter them over the face of the earth because who knows what they're going to get themselves into, okay? So they're scattered. And God goes and he finds one man named Abram in Babylon. And he just calls him. We're not exactly sure why. I mean, God in his wisdom found this man and he just said, Abram, go from your father's house to the land and I'm going to be with you. And Abram does it. He obeys. He just obeys and he goes. And he trusts God. He trusts him. This is the opposite of, this is what was broken by the serpent's deception, is a trust and a faith leading to an obedience of God. God's plan all along was to, in conjunction with an obedient mankind, Fill the earth with his glory. In conjunction with an obedient mankind, release that potential that he put within man on the earth to the glory of God. That was an amazing calling that man was created with. So, in beginning his restoration project, he calls a man and says... Be with me, I will bless you, and I will basically cause you to be fruitful and multiply. It sounds familiar, this purpose. In chapter 17, it says, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. Walk before me and be blameless, that I I may make my covenant between me and you And may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. So this is what God has always desired to do be the father to a son who could grow up and become a father like his father. That was Adam's destiny. That's mankind's destiny. To be a son, to be trained up, and to become a partaker of the father's heart and the father's purposes, and to join him in that work, and to himself become a father for the next generation. And that was to continue. Do you see the, do you see the, the beauty in that? And so he says, Abram, walk before me, learn my ways, be blameless, become blameless. And I will multiply you and you will become the father of many nations. And the, the sign of the covenant the, or the proof of the covenant, the proof of God's promise was to be a son that would be given to, to a couple that was Incapable of having a child on their own, and then and then that son came along after a couple false starts. (laughs) The son of the promise arrived. Sarah, Sarah even laughed, right? What are you talking about? So his name became Isaac, which means laughter. She tried to say that she didn't laugh, but she laughed. In chapter 18, it says that the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? This is an indication that this is my son. We are doing this thing together. And if I'm doing something, I'm going to bring my son into it. And so he says, son, let me tell you what's going on here. From my perspective, governing the earth, fathering the earth. Here's this little place called Sodom and Gomorrah. And we're going to have to go do something about it because it has gotten out of hand and it's gotten to the place where it needs to be dealt with. And Abraham says, but I have family there. Will you please? And Abraham is able to negotiate God. He would negotiate with God to stay his hand of judgment. He gets him down to 10 guys. Right? Unfortunately, there's not 10 righteous there. And so God has to act. But he says, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and that all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I've chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Now, there's a, there's a it, very, very Profound story that happens at the end, towards the end of Abraham's life. The God who he trusts completely at this point says, Kill your son. And Abraham obeys. Abraham obeys. Take your son, your only son, Isaac. Whom you love, go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains. It says that these things, uh, after these things, God tested Abraham. God is testing Abraham. Is this man obedient? Not is this man still have a little sin lingering in his heart. No. Is this man all in? Is this man all in? How am I going to know whether this man is all in or not? Well, what's the thing that I could tell him, that I could ask him to do that would be the very most difficult thing for him to obey? Is there any anything that I could ask of him that he would not obey let's see and so God does this not because he's cruel but because he understands that this would be the most the very most difficult point of obedience for Abraham God knows God has always known Jesus knows exactly where to put his finger on hearts to find out if you're all his or not. But Abraham does this. And we're not going to go through the whole story. It's an unbelievable story. Unbelievable story. And I think unbelievably profound and really at the heart of God's purposes. The angel of the Lord, right as he's about to slay Isaac. The angel of the Lord called him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Now I know that you fear God. Okay. And this was a a deeply significant act that that Abraham was about to do. And God says, I know that I have your heart completely. How did God know that he had Abraham's heart completely? And this is something that we're going to see a couple times uh, before the end tonight. Because God knows how much he loves his son. God knows how much he loves his son, has always loved him. It's a deeper love than any of us could ever wrap our minds around. God loves his son. God is willing to send his son to die out of love. The thing that he loves the most God loves Jesus the most out of anything. Do you know that? I hope that you know that. God loved Him, and it says that in John three sixteen. In in this verse is more profound than you know a a, a banner at the end of the touch at at the at the end zone, right? We've got to understand: for God so loved the world, this is how much God loved the world, and this is the way that He loved the world. That he gave his only son. That he gave his only son. The, the, the heart wrench that comes up in the, as we read the story about Abraham and Isaac, that's in the heart of God. When he gives his son. When he gave him out of love. God loves his son in Exodus 4:21, as he begins to, to move to liberate his people, as the story goes on, from the bondage in Egypt, Exodus four verse 21, it says, "The Lord said to Moses, "When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh." many hundreds of years to the time of David. And the co- God's covenant with David is a covenant of a father and a son. Right? This is where the son of God becomes, un- uh, where, where the king on, on the throne of Israel becomes understood to be the son of God. That uh, David, so when David built the tabernacle, um, or when he was making plans to build the, 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 the new temple, the glorious temple, Solomon actually ended up building it. God said, Lord, I want to build a dwelling place for you because we've been wandering around and now we're here. We're in Jerusalem. We're in the chosen land. This is it. It's the, the, the promise is coming to fruition. And it's time. Let's, let's build a house here. And God says something very interesting to him. 1 Samuel Or 2 Samuel, chapter 6. Chapter 7, sorry. The same night, the word, uh, chapter 7, verse 4. Same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? (laughs) Hold on, David. I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling and all the places where I have moved with all the people of Israel. Did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Have I ever complained about not having a house? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts. I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people, Israel. And I've been with you wherever you went. I've cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. I will appoint a place for my people in Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. I will give you rest. And then he says, uh, verse 11, I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you, that the Lord will make you a house. He says, David, this, this is not about a house that you can build for me so that I can find my whole plan here. Remember, you are to be the king of Israel, the king of the earth. Remember why I created mankind? To be my son, to be my representative, and to take dominion over the earth in a way that brings my glory into it, So he says, David, this whole thing, I'm not looking for a place. I want to make you into a house or into a household. Just like he, just like he promised Abraham to make him the father of many nations. David, I'm looking for a son that can take over the family business, is what he's saying. He said, I'm not worried about me. I want a son that I can raise up and say, go. And do it. Go and take over. Take authority. In my name, in the family name, go and live your life. So let's go to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. All of this sounds so familiar. Before the world began, and remember it's through the Son, Hebrews 1, that the world was created. But before the world even began, God chose us that he, and people get tripped up on this all the time, He's talking about the divine purpose before the world began. When he looked at his son, he said, this is it. Now let us make man in our image. Right? He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. So he said, let's make man and... If they go astray, what are we going to do? Are we committed to this project, son? Are we committed to this project? It may cost us our life. Is it good enough to potentially cost us our life? Yes. And so that's how God predestined us as adoption. If they go astray, I will discipline them. This is what he told David. I'll put one of your sons on the throne. I'll discipline him with the stripes of men if they, if they disobey. But I will not abandon them. Jesus is the son of God. And God said he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. In love, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. I love the ESV. I do not like it here at all because the purpose of his will is not what what the Greek says. It's the good pleasure of his will. Good pleasure. It's the same word that, and this is so, so significant. It's the same word that when Jesus is baptized, the Father's voice rings out and says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well-pleased. He doesn't say in whom I am purposed. (laughs) That might be included. But this is why God chose us. Yes, I love my son. This is the life that is good. This is what we long for with everybody that's created in the image of God. And it says, In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. His children that he knew would likely turn from him, he said, We'll go get them back. In love, We're going to determine ahead of time, son, to go get them back at whatever it costs. We'll go get them back. To the praise of his glorious grace. I mean, you have to stop and say to the praise of his glorious grace. When you you understand what Paul just said there, that before this all began, God loved the son and he wanted more. He wanted to share. But he knew that that introduced into the equation the potential for some to turn from him. Because you can love a god if they're robots, right? You can't have to share love with someone that you program to love you. It just doesn't work. As much as Elon Musk may have that in his, in his uh, product pipeline down the road, AI is not love. So he determined in love And what's love? Love is the commitment to the well-being of someone else at whatever cost to yourself. God says we're committed to what we're doing here in making man in our image. We're committed to it. We're committed to it enough to where it might cost us. It might cost us everything we have. It might cost us what we love the most. But we're committed to it. And that's what love is. At Jesus' baptism and at his transfiguration, the voice from heaven says, this is my son. And at his baptism, he says, I am well pleased in him. And at his transfiguration, he says, listen to him. (laughs) He knows what he's doing. He knows what life is about. All right, Jesus, the whole Sermon on the Mount, if you can hear it, if you have these ears to hear, is about how. The Father wants us to live life. We can turn there real quick and we go through a couple of scriptures here. The Sermon on the Mount, right? This is listen to Him. Jesus knows. Jesus knows how to live life. It's one of the greatest concentrations of just pure doctrine, pure teaching that exists in Scripture, straight from the mouth of Jesus. He says in uh, chapter five, let your light shine to get for others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven. Verse 45. Uh, when he's talk about loving your enemies. Right. In love, he predestined before uh, we could love him. He loved us while we were yet sinners. He loved us. He gave himself. He sent his son. God so loved the world. He gave his son. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. This is an amazing, amazing verse. Love your enemies because that's who the father is. That's how he loved you. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And we read this, and we, we're like, "Wait, that doesn't make sense. How can that be part of the gospel? It's absolutely part of the gospel, because what it means is what God's after is for you to share in His holiness and perfection. That's what he's after in your life. He's not after changing your eternal destiny from hell to heaven. He wants you to have full access, full inheritance. Full sonship, full rights, which means becoming perfect as he is perfect. And then he says, When you pray, forget all this religious mumbo jumbo in the, the public shows and the real the show. Just go into your room and pray to the Father. Pray to your Father, who's in, and he'll hear you because that's what he's after. He just wants to be with you. He wants to converse with you. When you fast, don't do it except for the Father. Don't be anxious because guess what? Your Father loves you. He knows what you need, he's ready to give you everything you need. And he gets to the end of the sermon. And he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. That's the one who knows God. That's the one who God knows. Everybody else, he says, I never knew you. All right, let's go to Hebrews 12, and, and we're almost done. So God is our Father. I think two big things, two, two big things stick out, two big words. And it's so crucial that we understand that these, are, these perfectly coexist in one person in our lives. Okay? And those two words are discipline and love. Discipline and love. Usually, our misconceptions about fatherhood have to do with an imbalance in our own fathers between one of those two things. Right? All right, we learned discipline from our fathers, but man, there was something that we just didn't understand about love from our fathers. This is why it's crucial, by the way, when we we talk about child training for our children to understand we have to embody absolute love and absolute discipline. You can't sever those. You can't outsource discipline to someone else. Someone be the loving person and someone be the disciplined person because that's not who God is. God is both in one person. And discipline only, we'll read here, discipline only really makes sense in God's eyes coming from the one who loves you more than anybody else loves you. Okay? Okay? Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, these are people that he has just described who learned how to obey God and who lived by faith. They are people who trusted the words of God, obeyed the commands of God because they trusted who he was, even though it didn't really make sense to them in the now, in the present. Okay? These are ones who did not listen to the deception of the enemy, who would come and say... Well, these commands of God are to deprive you of X, Y, or Z. These commands of God are to kind of suppress you into not being who your heart wants you to be or being who you think you can be. God's trying to just keep you in check. But look at all the, free your mind. Go and do that stuff. Because you're going to be more yourself. I mean, this is the gospel, that, this is the gospel of the American dream. The American individualism. This is is the gospel we hear preached all the time. And it's straight from the mouth of the crafty serpent. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Quickly turn over to chapter 2 in Hebrews for a quick description of This Jesus. Verse 8. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Talking about how Jesus seated at the right hand, ruling over the earth. He says at present, it doesn't seem like that, does it? But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. This is, this is, the, Jesus came, this is how, how God gave his son. He came and he confronted death and he took death into himself and destroyed death by submitting himself to death. For it was fitting that he... For whom and by whom all things exist. Remember, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Let us make man in our image. This is the one. This is the model for creation. The image of God that we were created in. It was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory. Should make the founder of that salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is and what is that source? He's, he doesn't say it explicitly here, but he says, that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers of one source, and that is the Father. Verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. He might undo that lie that Satan put in the mind of Eve that brought death into the world and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. I thought it said it right here, but it doesn't. But it says that that Jesus learned obedience through the things that he suffered. I think, does it say that in uh, chapter 12? All right, let's look at at, at chapter 12. Consider him, that's Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin... You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. This is found in the book of Proverbs, which is the book of King David, equipping, or Solomon, King Solomon, the wisest one that ever lived, equipping his sons to live the life of the kingdom. Don't be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves. He chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. You've got to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. You don't want a God who doesn't discipline you. People want a God that doesn't discipline them. But what they're saying is, I don't want to be a real son. I don't want to be a real daughter of God. I just want to be associated with this family. I don't really want to join in the mission and the purpose of this family. Because in order for you to join in the mission and the purpose of this family... God has to take you from someone who is consumed with your own desires, your own feelings, your own emotions. And God has to, through his sovereign hand on your life, you can read about it in Romans chapter 8, through his sovereign hand on your life, work in every situation to discipline you, to form you into the image of his son, who only hears and does the will of the Father. Do you want to be a son and a daughter of God? You are committing to a lifelong program of training and discipline out of a life lived for yourself and into a life poured out in love for the people that the Father loves. That's what, that's what the gospel proclaims to us. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers, and he, even he understands. Now listen, you're going to be a little bit limited in your capacity to grasp this because of, hey, we all have earthly fathers. They disciplined us for a short time as it seems best to them. Okay, We all have this period of time where we lived under the discipline of our earthly fathers, and your mileage may vary. There may be some deep wounds there. There may be some, you may have been spoiled. You may have been doted on your whole life. And you don't know, you don't understand what it means to be asked to go give your life for someone. Because all you've ever experienced is people giving their lives for you. And they've never disciplined you, called you up to join in this work of giving your life away. Sacrificing yourself. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? But they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good. And Satan's lie says, it's not for your good. It's for his good. It's not. It is not and has never been anything other than for our good that we may share in his holiness. This is why there was a grain of truth to Satan's lie. He knows that you're going to be like him. Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. That's why he created us. To share in his life. To share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. God created mankind be his sons his sons believed a lie about his true intentions toward them and ever since then god has been as hebrews says he had to reveal himself in all these different ways to, to bring his people back to an understanding of who he really is and in these last days he has spoken to us by his son how did he speak to us by his son first of all we can read about it in philippians 2 he left heaven he gave up his birthright. He gave up what was all the glory and the worship that he was receiving from the angels, and he left all of it and he became a man. And then as a man, he became obedient to the point of death. Because that's what it took for God to be able to undo that lie that exists in every mind. That God doesn't love us And even if he does, this is a strange way to love us, to cause us to suffer. What loving person would cause someone to suffer? God. For your sake. Sin was not just a minor inconvenience to the Father. Your salvation was not, oh, okay, yeah, I guess I, can, I guess I can go out of my way and, and pick you up on my way. It's on the other side of town, but oh well, I love you, so I'll do it. What your salvation cost was what Abraham's heart felt when he lifted the knife to kill Isaac. Isaac. That's how God loves you. When you hear, for God so loved the world that he gave, what you hear is the father, because there was no other way, and because he was 100% committed before time began to loving you and bringing you into fellowship with his son. Didn't have to, but he wanted to. He allowed himself, he allowed himself to experience the most painful thing that any heart can ever experience. Right? Because any father would would gladly take me instead. But he gave his only begotten Son. He gave There's nothing harder than that. God knows that because that was the ultimate test that He had to put Abraham through. Do you really know me? Do you really trust me? Kill your only son. Whoa. That's the gospel. But here's the thing. God is calling us, bringing us into adoption as sons. And what that means is we are learning to be like Jesus. Which means that God at some point wants to get you to the place where he can tell you you need to go suffer. You need to lay your life down. And you understand, oh, yeah, that's what he told Jesus. That's what God and his sons do. They suffer. They lay down their life. They empty themselves in love so that more people could come, bring many sons to glory. That's what it costs. That's what it costs for you to enter into the freedom that you enjoy. And so the question is, are you truly a son or a daughter of God? Or does there still exist in your heart a little bit of the lie, a little bit of the deception, that no, this couldn't, This discipline couldn't possibly be from the love of God. Something's wrong here. (laughs) Something's wrong. A loving God wouldn't want this for my life. Something's wrong. You believe a lie. And one who doesn't believe a lie lives in the reality of Romans chapter 8. And that's what we'll close with tonight. consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Yes, the life that God calls us to will consist of suffering, will consist of yet another laying down on my life, setting aside my preferences, setting aside my schedule. And the the, like Hebrews says, listen, none of these... (laughs) None of these draw blood, do they? None of these little sufferings draw blood. So why? So, so stop resisting this. and Stop kicking against the discipline of God in your life. The thing that is hard, that person that's difficult to love, the situation that just irks you, that is your father loving you. That is the love of God in your life. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Because that's what the world, the world needs, the sons of God, to rise up and take dominion, bring it into its fullness. Creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory the children of God. Verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, what's his purpose? To send his son, right? To, in love, to predestine us to receive adoption as sons through his son, who would lay down his life so that we could have that. Are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also pre. Uh, destined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined he also called, and those whom he called he also justified. Those whom he justified he also glorified. So what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And the lie of Satan just evaporates with that proclamation. If God is for us, there's no other question. The debate is over. He who did not spare his own son, and that, you've got to feel the heart-wrenching pain of that. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, well, if he did that, well, then it's nothing. The rest of life is nothing. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? So he says in all of these sacrifices and all of these, in all of suffering that the suffering that, that the discipline of God and the life of his sons brings into your life to make you more like Jesus, don't doubt the love of God. Rejoice that, yes, this, this is proof of the love of God. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Amen. The Father loves the Son, and the Son lays down his life to bring many sons to glory. And in bringing many sons to glory, he's teaching and disciplining those sons to be like Jesus. To share in his glory, but in our earthly life, to share in his suffering, right? If we are united with him in a de- resurrection like his, we will, in a death like his, we will be united with him in a resurrection like his, that I may know Christ and the fellowship of power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering, amen? When you understand the fatherhood of God, you understand how much he loved the Son, how much your salvation cost, and you understand what your life is destined for as God works in you and disciplines you to share in his holiness. Amen. Let's, uh, let's prepare our hearts to come to the table.